Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are helping to shape the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Pat O'Toole. Pat is a rancher who, along with his family, owns and operates the Ladder Ranch, a large-scale cattle and sheep operation that straddles the Colorado-Wyoming border. Pat's wife Sharon's family established the ranch in the Little Snake River Valley back in 1881, and now, six generations later, the family's hard work, thoughtful vision, and deep respect for the land have made the Ladder Ranch a shining example of the combined effect of productive agriculture and land conservation. Pat's background is far outside the norm for many multi-generational ranchers. He grew up in South Florida, majored in philosophy in college, and then just before he and his wife enrolled in law school, at the very last minute they decided to return to her family's land to continue in the family business of ranching. Since then, the O'Toole's have not only run a financially successful operation, but they've simultaneously improved wildlife, bird, and fish habitat throughout the ranch. By thinking outside the box and partnering with both nonprofit and governmental organizations, the latter ranch has set a new standard for conservation, creative problem solving, and sustainable land stewardship. We had a fun, in-depth conversation that covered a wide variety of topics that will be of interest to anyone who loves the West, whether you're involved in ranching or not. We discussed Pat's thoughts on cooperation between ranchers and environmentalists and how the relationship between the two groups is getting stronger and more positive every year. We chat about water in the West and why it's important to keep water on ranches rather than being sold off to municipalities. We also dig into Pat's unconventional background, his thoughts on the future of land conservation, and of course, favorite books, history, and his favorite location in the West. I connected with Pat over the phone, and over the course of the interview, you'll get a good appreciation for just how family-focused his ranch is. You'll hear his kids and grandkids coming and going in the background, which I thought was very, very cool. It's rare to get to work with generations of your family members in any capacity, much less on such a spectacular Rocky Mountain ranch for well over 100 years. As you'll see, Pat is a super interesting guy who's thought very deeply on issues related to the American West, including conservation, water, agriculture, and much more. There's a lot of great information in this interview, so I hope you enjoy Yeah, well, we uh, describe ourselves as we raise cattle, sheep, horses, dogs, and children, <laughs> and occasionally expectations. Sure. So, <laughs> um, that we're, we're ranchers on the Colorado Wyoming line, and um, you know, have an irrigated farming part of our operation, and then uh, we raise Rambouillet sheep and Angus uh, baldy cows. So your ranch has been in your family for for generations now. Can you kind of give a, a overview of of when your predecessors uh, settled there in that area, and just kind of an overview of the history of the ranch? Sure. Well, actually, it's my wife's family has mm-hmm. been here since 1881. And <clears throat> if anybody's read or seen Lonesome Dove, uh, her great grandfather came up on a couple of cattle trails, and then. Uh, was working in a winter down by Steamboat Springs at Hans Peak in, in a mine, and he he uh, met a Scotsman that was an engineer that financed him, and he put together a crew of people uh, in Eagle Pass, Texas, and gathered up several hundred horses and trailed them up here. So, and that's how the ranch started. It was a uh, raising horses for the army, and so they'd bring in Belgian studs from on a train uh-huh. and breed them to these horses that they brought up. And, and that was the first edification of how this, <coughs> how this started. But as you probably know, you know, the thing that I think people don't really understand is the history of why the West is like it is, mm-hmm. you know, and you have to go back to Lincoln in 1862 and the Homestead Act. And that, you know, pretty much set the path of what was going to happen. So this, this ranch started with a 160-acre homestead. Yep. And that that wasn't um, at all sustainable. Sure. And so we, I call it the world's greatest 
example of uh, social Darwinism because <laughs> the ranches that are here today are the ones that survived, and you know this ranch is made up of quite a few homesteads that didn't survive one one way or another. Well, could you could you describe that or talk about that a little more in detail? Because I think a lot of people, especially people who live on the East Coast, don't really understand that. Because on the East Coast. 160 acres is a huge amount of land, and you could raise plenty of cows or, or plenty of any kind of livestock on 160 acres because they get so much rain. Can you talk about how 160 acres just isn't sufficient in the West and why? Well, it, you know, one, it depends on where it is. Two, you've got a huge public land component. And so the initial people came out, you know, it was kind of free grazing, and it was, you know, the kind of the people with the most – horsepower, you know, were able to graze the most land Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, it evolved into, you know, personalities and marketing capability and survival. But um, out here, irrigation is a huge deal. And so the water rights system started sort of in the mining business, but it ended up being, you know, the uh, um, sort of the premise for all of Western irrigated and then Western law. And it's called prior appropriation. It means the first in use, first in right, first in use. So that means that the first people that used it for what they call beneficial use, so if you put it on land to make hay or crops, that's a beneficial use. And, uh, you know, that if you maintain that use, you maintain that water right. Mm-hmm. And so this ranch has 1880s territorial water rights and then others that came later that you know, we just kept building up our acres and and uh, water rights, and so now we, you know, we have the ability to irrigate about 600 acres of hayland that we produce for our cattle and sheep, and then for grazing later in the system. But we also have a <clears throat> pretty good fishery, and um, you know, our mountain lands, our riparian river lands, are all in in a uh, national important bird area with Audubon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're just trying to show how, you know, over a period of time we've been able to put together a ranch that that is still surviving. And, you know, as time goes on, you can see that the land can do a whole lot of things. So we, you know, we feel like the conservation part of what we do is a pretty important part. It's also part of a business model. You know, my daughter um, has a kind of multifaceted uh, you know, it's not a huge business, but it's a business model that that helps us with some cash flow. And and at the same time, you know, during hunting season and during fishing during the summer, you know, it's just some additional income. Sure. Um, we, we spoke about this a little bit on the phone last week, um, but one of the things I run into a lot is I, I live in Boulder, and, you know, Boulder is a, a hotbed for environmentalism. And there, there are a lot of very well-meaning envir- environmentalists here who think that ranchers and environmentalists uh, cannot see eye-to-eye on things, and they think that livestock is not good for the land, and they're, 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 they've got a, a serious misunderstanding there. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because I know that you work between both groups, and um, you were actually at a conference a few weeks ago that was is heavily attended by env- environmentalists. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on, first of all, how ranching can be great for the environment, how it's needed in this part of the world, and then just how you're, you've seen the two groups kind of come together over time. Right. Well, there, you know, there's a, in the old movies they always – talk about how the sheep cattle wars happened because the sheep grazed the grass this way and the cows grazed the grass another way and 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 it's all untrue you know mm-hmm. if you put too many animals i don't care if it's buffalo or giraffes or zebras <laughs> if you put too many they'll overgraze yes. and so the you know the uh, philosophy of of the land is that one it's always been grazed you know there's always been grazing animals and when you understand how the grasses work, you know, we feel like for our operation, and this isn't everybody because you can do either, <coughs> excuse me, cattle or sheep separately and do it. But when you do both, um, cattle eat mostly uh, grass with some browse. Browse is like sagebrush or, you know, broadleaf plants. 
and and uh, sheep eat mostly forbs and grass. Mm-hmm. So they have an overlap, but they, if you do both correctly, you can get 40% more utilization, whether that be pounds or time or whatever you're trying to do on, uh, um, you know, doing both, which is what we do. Sure. And so we do rotations, and then we do, um, you know, pretty big movement. Our animals graze in the national forest and on private lands um, up in the forest area in the summer, but then the sheep trail 150 miles to a desert area north of I-80 um, that is generally open for snow, you know, and they're able to graze all winter. Mm-hmm. And then we run the cows, they eat um, hay until the green grass comes. And so we're trying to utilize lands both in a big rotation of in the summer, you know, not using the same land all summer, rotating around, and at the same time, um, you know, the summer country doesn't get used from the middle of June, uh, excuse me, from <clears throat> the 1st of October uh, to the, you know, to the middle of June, because we're not on there then. And you obviously have wildlife and, you know, elk and deer and antelope grazing and, you know, all kinds of wildlife. But from the rancher perspective, it doesn't, we don't use it till it grows up to a certain, you know, uh, height and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that's our big circle. It's just like, you know, a big um, balanced rotation is how we look at it. And so when, you, when you're doing it, um, two things I think are really the most important. One, if you don't have ranchers, and there was a Forest Service lady in Steamboat that said, the, the worst grazer is better than the best subdivision. <laughs> and, and that's the truth. You know, once you break up ranches and people that are using the land, it's pretty easy to see what happens. So sure. go to a, you know, go to any kind of um, recreation, ski area, whatever, you know, and, and uh, you know, watch the houses move out and you lose all that habitat. And, for example, in Colorado, there was a, a vote years ago to not do trapping. Well, now there's somewhere near nine times more bears than habitat in the state of Colorado. So bears are getting into homes and, you know, breaking into camps and whatever, because mm-hmm. there's more bears than there are habitat. And that's the case with, you know, kind of management of livestock or wildlife or whatever. You've got to try to find that balance. Mm-hmm. And so we have been, you know, for years, have a lot of friends that are, you know, self-described conservationists, and, and we think we are too. And, you know, in the, in the 90s during... Bruce Babbitt and the first Clinton administration, when things were so contentious, uh, it was a real dividing line. But over time, I think, you know, I have this saying about the hopefuls and the hatefuls. Mm-hmm. And the hopefuls are the people that I've been working with for decades now, who we are doing more neat projects than you can imagine. And the haters are the litigators who don't want solutions. They want all the people off the land and think that'll, you know, be a better result. Um, reality is when you lose people that are taking care of the land raising food it goes in a direction that isn't good for conservation or for food production or for open spaces or for any of those things sure and we're watching that in Colorado in a big way you know and I I had a guy come up the other day real smart guy from uh, Fort Collins and we were talking about a bunch of different things and 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 he had no idea that the water that grows the eastern slope come from the western slope <laughs> and and that's the same all over colorado people don't realize that we're tapping the western slope for the growth of the eastern slope sure and i would say you know and this is where i think it's all going to get interesting i mean you've got a lot of agendas obviously you know conservation is one agriculture food production is one rural communities is one urban growth is one and and so we've kind of come to the era of limits. I, I describe it as the era of limits. We mm-hmm. don't have unlimited water, unlimited land. The only thing we're limiting ourselves on is farmers and ranchers who, you know, are going the wrong direction. You know, the, I think I told you the other day the fastest growing category of people in agriculture is 70 and above, mm-hmm. and only 35% uh, uh, of farmers are... Or, or excuse me, only six percent of farmers are under thirty-five. That that doesn't work. You know, sure. That's not sustainable. And yet, 
that's the direction we're moving in. And so we're, you know, politically, um, I just saw a thing the other day from, from uh, an urban group talk, kind of demonizing farmers and ranchers for the way they use their water because they want it. Mm-hmm. And there's some ugly discussions going on right now. Uh, and yet there's a lot of coalitions between agriculture and conservation because you can sure show how you can do both. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what we prided ourselves and our community does. So things that are typically, you know, kind of been described as bad, like storage, especially now, we're getting into a drier cycle, a wetter, I mean, a, a warmer cycle where we're seeing the water runoff earlier. Mm-hmm. Well, it, if you don't do small storage all over the West, you're not going to have rivers. That's just the way it'll be. Sure. And so, you know, not doing anything is doing something. And, yeah, that's a choice. And, uh, <laughs> it's a choice. Yeah, to it's do a nothing. choice. And so we're working in this community to put in our second significant storage reservoir up here high in the mountains so that we can have both irrigated agriculture and fisheries and migratory bird hatching in the spring and all those things. And and if you don't understand the hydrology, you're you're going to make some big mistakes. And and I think what we're seeing is that these dialogues between you know people that are uh, conservation minded and and agriculture in its best sense are really positive mm-hmm. because we're trying to figure out how to do both. And it isn't just the age thing. I mean, the, it doesn't matter whether it's the United Nations or the most conservative food analysis in the world, we've got to double the food supply to deal with 9.7 billion people. Yep. And so you have to start making choices. You know, uh, I live in a place where you can do both fairly easily. I mean, we can have all the birds in the world and the fish and the cattle and the sheep, and it. we've got a great landscape. Some landscapes, you know, in the Central Valley of California or, uh, you know, places where the food capability is so incredibly prolific you know maybe you waited heavier for food in some places you waited heavier for conservation but you're trying to find a balance and i guess um and i i think i describe it as a you know as a, as a um, platform that's rising that you do both mm-hmm. and instead of choosing you know one over the other you're trying to do as much of both as you can because the country can only you know only have so much um, capability, but I think we've only tapped, you know, how much um, coordinated and, uh, you know, people working together is out there. There's just so much opportunity. I, there's more than a lifetime, in my view, in my le- ranch, our ranch, our family's ranch, and so we're pretty excited about all the things we still get to do, and and I think that's, you know, when people start looking at it, you've got limits on one level you've got growth pushing um the transition of water away from agriculture which will have huge impacts on wildlife mm-hmm. and we are going to have to start making some hard decisions so well we could we could continue to dig into to all that and i'd like to talk more about especially the water part because i think there's a, a lot of misunderstanding that's that's interesting what you said about the guy from fort collins because i, I run into that all the time you know people who are very smart, very interested, highly educated, but some of the most basic parts of how things work out here in the West, they just don't know. They, they just, they have no idea. And so I would like to talk more about that, but I'd also, before we dig into that, um, I know you've got a, a interesting personal background. That's not your stereotypical multi-generational, uh, rancher background. So, um, where did you grow up and where did you go to school and how did you end up on the ladder ranch? Well, it's, it's a long and winding trail that I, my my four grandparents came from Ireland in the turn of the century, um, some through Scotland, but you know basically all Irish people that, you know, tried one generation to, after the potato famine, and then they went to Pittsburgh to work in the steel mills actually. Okay. And uh, then my family kind of moved around, and I was actually raised in South Florida, and um, went to school there for a while and ultimately decided I wanted to not be there, you know, and the growth today <laughs> pretty much is why. Yep. But I ended up uh, going to school in Fort Collins. Okay. And my wife and I both worked for the Collegian as uh, editors and 
and uh, we met there, and and uh, we um, were going to go to law school, and we both were accepted to the University of Wyoming Law School to to be water lawyers was sort of our thought. Yep. And uh, the day school started, we had been here for the summer on the ranch, and and we liked it, and I sure liked it, and her dad, you know, talked about um, maybe there would be a place if we were interested, so. The day school started, we gave our two places to somebody and ended up um, herding sheep for three years. We bought a bunch of sheep with no teeth and, you know, old sheep or old cows, the way you tell they're getting old is their teeth uh, disappear. Uh-huh. And and you can buy old sheep, and if you take really good care of them, get another year out of them here. So we did that and sort of learned that part of the business and then learned... You know, it was sort of the total business, you know, putting up hay and running cows. And so here we are. Was it a, uh, was that a, a hard decision or did you feel in your gut that that was the, that was the thing to do or how did you come to that decision? How would it, how, that's quite a, oh, yeah, quite a U-turn. I always tell people that all the lawyers said buy livestock and all the livestock people said go be a lawyer. So <laughs> it wasn't like there was any help there, but um, we really, you know, this is a beautiful spot, and uh, you know, uh, you know, we should talk a little bit about um, Sharon's dad, who was real, really a genius guy. Yeah, I've read he about figured it. Out, it sounds unbelievable. Yeah, rotational grazing systems in the '40s, and you know, he had an education in uh, um, range management from CSU, and and he just started thinking things through. And you know, uh, I mentioned earlier the 1862 Lincoln deal. Well, the other big thing was when Roosevelt took all the lands that hadn't been homesteaded and put them into the forest and the BLM in 1906. Mm-hmm. And so the lands were um, still kind of used uh, not in the best way. You know, there was a lot of overgrazing. There was no regulation. And until the mid-30s and, you know, all the things that happened in the Oklahoma and the Dust Bowl and all that stuff, during the Roosevelt administration, a whole lot of things started happening that we you live with today, and I think mostly positive in that, you know, the Soil Conservation Service, which is now the NRCS, um, actually a neighbor from Hayden, Colorado, a uh, guy that was a lawyer in Hayden, um, or, you know, went around the whole West and put together all the grazing allotments mm-hmm. so that they were official and your family or knew what you had and Everybody had their own, and there were you know, rules that went along with it. And that began a phase, you know, that uh, people were still, you know, accumulating and moving forward, you know, the ones that survived. But, you know, it tells you now what we have is, you know, fairly, not totally, but fairly stable systems of, of ownership of, you know, private land and public land. If you have enough public land to go with your private land, you can probably run a sustainable operation, mm-hmm. and that's what we've tried to do. So, yeah, that all makes sense. Um, when you're looking back at your at your father-in-law and and some of the stuff he was able to figure out and do, you know, before there was before you know this stuff had become mainstream, like rotational grazing. Is there any particular project or idea that? You look back and you you just wonder how in the world did he figure that out? Well, there, were, there was some country in the in the uh, Medicine Bow National Forest now that's above us that we graze now and some of our neighbors and and it had been used pretty darn hard. And uh, the company it was I think in 1948 uh, George had been a, a tank commander with Patton in World War II, mm-hmm. and you know he had a pretty strong personality and he came back and he looked at this ruined country in the in 1948 this pretty big sheep outfit put their sheep up on the forest to lamb their have lambs the first of may well this country isn't ready for that at that time mm-hmm. and they had a storm they said the snow was up to the wagon you know the old wooden wheeled wagons up to the doors and killed everything and so when they went out of business, that was when there was an opportunity to put together some of this country in a different way. And uh, several of the neighbors up here in George got together and made big pastures, um, did a lot of weed control, spraying, um, rotational grazing with sheep and cattle. And all of a sudden it went from being really used hard to um, 
to what it is today. And I, you know, what it shows you is the resilience of the land. And I always, the lessons I've learned is how if you give nature a chance, uh, the, the resiliency inherent in nature is pretty amazing. Yes. And, and so, you know, the idea that something has been used incorrectly or whatever doesn't mean that it's always going to be like that. I think it means that let's look and see what we can do to make it better. Sure. And that's sort of the philosophy that we're we're trying to do. You know, we just look at our land and there's lots of things we still want to do, and, but you can't do everything at once. But the other part is, you know, the, the grandchildren are the sixth generation here and and uh, we're trying to teach them the things that were might not get done in this generation, but, you know, maybe they'll get them done. Yeah, that's great. You know, I, we were talking before we started recording that I've got a little one-year-old daughter, and so I'm I'm always interested to hear how, how people um, in, get that conservation mindset ingrained in, in children at an early age. Are, are there any specific specific lessons you can give me as a father and grandfather? <laughs> well, you know what? What you find is if you just talk about cows, that's all they'll talk about Mm -hmm. until they get older. But if you talk about cows and fish and birds and sheep and horses and dogs, they'll talk about all those things. And so, you know, when you're working with your border collies and training them, you know, the kids see that and they see what the interrelationship is. You know, so we just have this new puppy that my wife has and, and, uh, She's the daughter of my really good dog, and and my son has a tremendous stud dog. And so we knew that she had all the genetics in the world. And this weekend we were working cows, and, I mean, she's just a little puppy, just barely weaned. And and, uh, the first little bunch of cows we pushed out of this corral, we were, you know, branding and taking off horns and stuff like that. And, And we used the good dog to push them out. Well... From then on, every time a calf would come out, she just pushed it out and followed it just perfectly. And you can't teach that. They sure. either have it or they don't. But, but you know, everybody at the ranch is talking about it. Isn't it cool how Cora has all of this stuff? And you just know how good a dog she's going to be because she's got it. She's mm-hmm. got that thing. Well, it's the same thing, you know, good horses or, or uh, you know, we've uh, sorted out the bulls we're going to keep. And so you're choosing between the good ones and the not so good ones or, you know, the sheep or you, you know, raising the right kind of wool and, and they're the ones that are the meat sheep, are they the right kind? So it's just, you know, trying to teach all the pieces and pretty soon they start figuring stuff out and have ideas that are better than yours. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's definitely, I'm only 15 months in, but it's a, it's a really, it's a cool, cool experience. Um, so one other question um, do, about kind of your personal background. Do you have any, any role models or mentors? It sounds like your father-in-law is a huge mentor, um, but they could be alive or dead, people you've met or maybe have not met, writers. You know, are there any, any people you look to as a great example that you try to follow as you, you know, pursue ranching? Well, I, you know, this guy I mentioned that, that went around and put together the grazing allotments. Mm-hmm. You know, he was an East Coast guy that moved out here, became a lawyer, you know, and and then, you know, went and worked for the Roosevelt administration. Ferry Carpenter is his name. And and I'm rereading a book called Confessions of a Maverick. Oh, I've got that on my shelf, actually. Uh, Eric, oh, Glenn. Eric Glenn gave it to me and told me I needed oh, to read man. it, and I haven't read it that yet. That is a great book. So, you know, you have a guy like that or... You know, our family was very fortunate to win the Leopold Award, so I've read a lot about, you know, uh, Elder Leopold. You know, obviously that's an example. And we have the really great um, system in this valley. And all the things I talked about in the 30s, um, you know, we have to deal with multiple federal agencies. And we're... um, um, you know, we, we're right on the state line. So the original homestead was right on the state line. So we evolved into being both states. Yep. Well, in one way, that's good. But in another way, it's two Forest Service and two BLMs and two Game and Fish and two, you know what I'm saying? Yes. And so we have a tremendous um, regulatory world that we have to live in. And, and uh, you know, trying to figure that out is the, almost becoming the most difficult part of what we do. And so, you know, trying to think about, you know, a philosophy of making things simpler 
you know, doing things logically. And what we have in this valley is we have a really good NRCS. That's the Department of Agriculture that, you know, conservation districts, the whole United States, every piece of land is covered by a conservation district, even the cities. Mm-hmm. And it and it's how you do the conservation within those borders. Well, they're not all great, but we have a great one. And we have a great elected board of our conservation district board. Our daughter is on it. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a leader here in this community who is the best conservationist I've ever been around. He's also a, a state senator here in, in Wyoming. What is his name? Um, uh, Larry Hicks. Okay. And uh, he's just a legendary guy, you know, and he, he sees the world in a very complete way that is unique in my experience. And so one of the things he did uh, north of Bags, Wyoming, out in which you would drive through and say, boy, just a big old desert. Well, he took a desert tributary and over the last 20 years or so made it into the largest man-made wetland in Wyoming. And it's 3,500 acres that's integrated with a lot of irrigated grazing for the landowners. Mm-hmm. And the bird numbers went from 29 species to 140, and it's on the Continental Divide, so it becomes part of the Atlantic and Pacific Flyway. That's great. And it is an incredible story, you know, of integrating production agriculture and conservation. And we're doing that all up and down this watershed. And it's why, you know, when you see how it can work when it's working right, it's pretty cool. Um, And like I said, not everybody, you know, has all the leadership and the people in place, but, but we do in a pretty big scale. And, you know, it gives you a lot of confidence for the kind of things that you can do. Sure. Um, you know, back to the, the water aspect, I've, I've interviewed a, a lot of people on this podcast, and I think I told you this, that I'd say about 85%, 80-90% of, of the people I've interviewed, when I ask them what's the biggest challenge facing the West, they say water. And that's not, they're not in the ranching business. You know, a few of them are, but a lot of them are either athletes or they're artists, uh, you know, at the full spectrum, and everybody seems to know that, that water is going to be the the big issue, um, becoming more and more of an issue. And so, but, but the reality is that nobody really understands it and understands why it's going to be such an issue. So could you, um, you know, one of the issues we run into is that people are, or municipalities are buying water from ranchers and drying up ranchers, meadows and pumping that water to cities. And so can you talk a little bit about that and why, that is not the the solution or, or not the, the complete solution to, to the water issues in the West? Well, the first, the first part is that it, if you keep doing it, you inevitably run out, so you can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. So do we want to decide not to run out now, or do we want to wait till we run out? Yeah, you're just delaying then, the inevitable. Yeah, you're de- delaying an inevitable, and you're essentially, you know, this – transfer of water from the western slope to the eastern slope. This valley uh, has the only transbasin diversion in Wyoming, so water from here goes to Cheyenne. Mm-hmm. And we've spent decades fighting for storage to make up for that water we lost. And there's, you know, sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. It's called, you know, basin of origin protection. That means that if you take water from a basin, you should at the very least do storage, you know, to make up so that late in the year that water that would have been percolating through the system, um, you know, is there. But it's very complicated, obviously. Um, You know, I'm president of the board of a group called the Family Farm Alliance, Mm -hmm. and we represent irrigators in the 17 western states, testify to Congress quite a bit, you know, write papers on policy, um, you know, and, and are pretty involved in these discussions. And we've been, you know, when you're looking at all the West, you know, kind of cumulatively, it's really interesting how, you know, the fights in Colorado are the same as the fights in, you know, Nevada or Kansas or North Dakota. You know, everybody is coming to the realization there's only so much water and what are we going to do, especially if we're into a drier cycle or a warmer cycle. Mm-hmm. And if if it's a warmer, wetter cycle, which sometimes you think it is, you do X. If it's a warmer, drier cycle, you do Y. Or if it's a, you know, intense storm, which I think there's 
certainly a lot of evidence of that. You've got to be, you've got to make ag- agriculture resilient. And, and so by, you know, buy and dry, which is what happened in the Arkansas Valley in Colorado, people now realize that was not a good idea. Mm-hmm. And you drive through there and you look at those, what used to be fertile agricultural farms and stuff. It, it isn't clearly not where we want to go. You go to South Park, which is Fair Play, yep. which in 98, their water went to Aurora. That used to be this huge irrigated uh, hay and wildlife, um, and now it isn't. It's all dried up. Mm-hmm. And and so we have plenty of examples that are decades old, and I think, um, you know, I describe it as, do you want the Colorado you want, or do you want the one you deserve? Mm-hmm. And that's the case all over the West. You know, and so when you have... Harry Reid, who's you know about to leave the Senate, um, wanting to put fifty million dollars into paying farmers and ranchers not to farm a ranch, so that you know look at it, Las Vegas can grow more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that doesn't seem to make sense to me. No. You know, and and the beauty of where I'm at is I get to defend farmers and ranchers. It's pretty easy. You know, I know where my values are, and I don't have to, you know, get too deep into the subconscious, but. The the reality is where a lot of policymakers are are uh, conflicted because people didn't move to Boulder or Fort Collins or Denver from somewhere else for the city as much as they did to be able to know that Colorado has you know lots of wildlife and fish and open meadows and beautiful ranches and farms that's what they enjoy you know and all the wildlife that goes with it mm-hmm. and if you don't understand not just as you know, people say, well, you use too much water for food. Well, you use the amount of water it takes to make the food. Exactly. But if you do it, if you do it, um, you know, like we're trying to do here, and, you know, there's all kinds of different ways to do it. But here, if you flood irrigate, which we do on on uh, two-thirds of our land. Can you explain for you, people who don't who don't know what that means, what that, that means? That means you divert water from a river into a into ditches and then there's all these ditch systems and you flood the field mm-hmm. and in some ways you know you can make an argument that it mimics what the beavers did sure you know because they're but what that did is it recharged the aquifer also because that water percolates yep. so the water you're putting on it's called return flow and then it goes back into the system and i'm on a several uh conservation boards and one of them is this intermountain joint venture that does migratory birds in the West. Mm-hmm. So the heads of all the game agencies and the Fish and Wildlife and BLM and ranchers and Audubon and, and others are all, you know, working on how do we maintain those numbers. Well, it's clear, and they just have done several years of studying, that flood irrigation is why we have the migratory birds in the West that we do, because mm-hmm. they're hatching in these meadows, these wet meadows in the spring, and then the, the rancher is getting hay afterward, and it's sort of a symbiotic system. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I have this saying, it's called the myth of efficiency, and that's that sprinklers or super-efficient use of water is the future. Well, what you do when you take water away from the wet meadow system is you dry up the rivers because you're not recharging the aquifer. You're using all the water consumptively. Mm-hmm. And so the, you know, the, the reality is you've got to find that balance where I, in my view, I mean, this is my personal view, obviously, but I, I think, you know, when you're doing as many things as you can with that land and maintaining its open spaces, that's where, you know, a Colorado or a Montana or Idaho, that's where we want to be. We want to be able to ha- live in a place that you can see, you know, that balance. And I guess I feel pretty strongly you know, that we're looking at Colorado, the, you know, I, to me, the Fort Collins-Greeley corridor is changing so fast, and it's gone, you know, Greeley's a weld county. It used to be the second biggest SAG county in the United States, mm-hmm. and it's just turning into pavement. Sure. Uh, nobody feels good about that, really, except the developers. And I, you know, I talked to a, a water meeting last week, and I said, how come there's never a developer at these meetings that goes, you know, to the water managers and say, I want to put a thousand houses here, find me the water. You know, they don't care about any of these things I'm talking about or you are interested in. 
but they're the ones that are driving the system. Mm-hmm. And we're at a point now where we're changing the whole system for the growth system. And and uh, I don't know. It's just it's kind of coming to a interesting uh, conflict laden future. Yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting. Um, <laughs> there's there's no question about that. And you know, it just it seems to me that there's just for some reason there's just a lack of education on it. You know, I mean, I. I feel like I, I know more than most, but I know the more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know. And so you think about people who have no desire to learn about any of this stuff. It's just, uh, I think, I think there's going to be a, a turning point where people are going to learn the hard way. Um, uh, so and one thing I like about everything you say there though, is that you, you know, you acknowledge that it's unbelievably complicated and that there are different answers for different circumstances. And I think, you know, some, some groups, uh, they just, they, they want there to be a very simple answer that applies to all situations, you know, like get the people out of here or get the cows out of here, but that's nothing's that simple, (laughs) you know, everything's complicated. And so anyway, I, I really appreciate how how deeply you think on that subject and and how you can communicate it because more people need to hear it. Um, well, you, you know the, the other part though, you know I talked about the developers being a driver. The other are the lawyers mm-hmm. and the law schools, and you know there's a lot of people trying to figure out how to change the law so that it would be easier for cities and to some extent environment to get the water from the farmers and ranchers. It's just, it's that simple. It's a very complicated deal on one level, but it's simple on another. And I'm one of those guys that will protect the prior appropriation doctrine because it isn't just about the farmer and rancher part. It's a system that makes us hesitate to just do the easy thing, and that's turn all the water to growth. Sure. Because that's where the money is. And people say, you know, water needs to go to the highest, best use. Well, the, you know, the highest, best use is mixed with scotch in Las Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> You know, is that how we're going to determine the future of the West? I don't think so. Sure. Um, could you talk a little bit about, you, you mentioned it briefly, the the Leopold Award that your family won for your ranch. And I'll, I'll put a link to the video and to the webpage, but I think that's a, that's a really neat award that's gone to some great folks. Um, and could you just talk about that for a, a moment? Sure. There, there's a group called the Sand County Foundation that, you know, is out of Wisconsin and, and does a lot of policy work. And, and uh, you know, it's obviously based on the philosophy of Aldo Leopold. And it, they choose uh, a rancher in a western state um, every year. And it is, to us, you know, the greatest honor to have received it. And, and it, you know, it talks about how you do this balance, how you, you know, we have to raise food. And we have to keep the landscape open if we can, but we do it in a way that melds with the conservation part. And and it's a real stimulus. You know, people now are going, well, how do I get one? Mm-hmm. You know, what do I have to do to my operation to get one? The other thing is the winners are accumulating together. And, you know, there's several forums. I was at a farm bill forum in uh, California recently with a whole bunch of Leopold winners. And so you get you know, this interconnectedness of people talking about conservation in a real way. And you're always learning how somebody else did it. That was one of my father-in-law's sayings, go, go see somebody else's place. You'll learn something. Mm-hmm. Cause, cause there's something that happens on a ranch that doesn't happen all over America like it used to. And that's it. You know, we're, you know, an hour, an hour and a half from town, any town. If something breaks, you're first going to try to fix it yourself. Mm-hmm. And what I've been the most amazed at is the, is the, the, you know, when the when the human mind is faced with a challenge that you really need to solve if you can, how innovative people are. And so you have these, you know, uh, you know, uh, experiences are happening every day all over the West or all over the United States, wherever there's farmers or the world, where people are solving problems for themselves. And the Leopold thing just takes it to another level because you're sitting around with people who have, you know, through a level of criteria that San County comes up with, you know, have just done things in a way that, you know, they're sitting on their tractor, sitting on their horse or sitting on a rock by a river. And they go, you know what, if I do this a little different, these things will happen. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the most exciting part. It's so inspiring. Uh, and then, 
I'm also on the board of a group called Partners for Conservation. And, and it's important for people to understand how important the Endangered Species Act is. And it's, um, you know, often used as a blunt club mm-hmm. and is not really effective. Um, California is dealing with a thing called the Delta Smelt, which is essentially de-watering and deconstructing one of the greatest agricultural places in the world. Um, I'm involved in the, in the sage-grouse thing. Mm-hmm. And our family has a lot of sage-grouse, and, and we can see how working together works a lot better than conflict and litigation. Yes. And so the part, Partners for Conservation is a group of ranchers and farmers that's becoming nationwide that um, works with the Fish and Wildlife Partners Group. That's separate from the Ecological Service part, which mm-hmm. is the listers. And we're having great discussions about what is the future? Is the future conflict or is the future partnership? And and it, you know, sort of comes that whole piece, you know, the Leopold part, the Sand County part, the partners part, the, you know, this kind of vision of, you know, we're running into an era of limits. How do we partner with each other to come up with the best solutions? I'm always happy to hear about people partnering and, and trying to, to come up with solutions versus fighting, but it makes me especially happy given this insane election we're in the middle of right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I want to be respectful of your time. We're, we're at about 45 minutes now. And so there's some questions that I've asked all my guests and I've gotten some really interesting answers. And so I'd like to run through those with you real quick. They're, they're relatively quick questions, but you don't have to give a quick answer. Um, one that I'm especially interested to hear from you because we, we talked about books for a while the other day is do you have any favorite books or books that you always recommend to others related to the American West or related to any subject? You know that uh, what I mentioned earlier, Larry McMurtry's book on uh, Lonesome Dove. That is so good. Is, it is so good. I never read um, fiction. But, that, and, and that is one of my favorite books of all time, even though I mean, yeah, I, just I never re-read read fiction. it. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just finished this uh, really a great book called Jefferson's America, which is about not just Lewis and Clark, but various um, uh, people he sent out to explore. Um, and one of the things I didn't know is Zebulon Pike discovered the headwaters of the Mississippi River. You know, didn't discover them like, you know, pe- people had been there, trappers, and, but from the official perspective of the government, learning the parameters of the Louisiana Purchase and then went west and Santa Fe Trail and all that. Um, that's been a really great book that I've read recently. And then I'm reading also that uh, there's a book on Teddy Roosevelt after his mother and wife died on the same day. Yes. He moved out to the Badlands, and there's a really great book on it that I'm reading. Is it Theodore Roosevelt in the Badlands? Yeah. Yeah, I've read yeah. that. That's, I, God, that's, that's a really, really good terrific. One. Have you read uh, yeah. Wilderness Warrior about Theodore Roosevelt? I have, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, that's one. the one where uh, he and, oh, what's his name? Pincho? Pincho? Uh, no, the uh, oh the, the other guy that wanted to keep Yosemite. Oh, John um, Muir. John Muir, yeah. And, and they spent three days together and... And at the end, John Muir said he doesn't even know his bird so- his bird songs or something like that. And I thought, no matter what level you're at, there's jealousy. But it was yeah, that was a great book too. Yeah, that was a good one. I I can't get enough uh, Theodore Roosevelt, but I, I love that time period when he's when he's in the West. Um, what a neat guy! Um, you know, another book that's really cool is the Apache Wars. I, I have um, not read that one. And it's fairly new, but it's it's about you know obviously not it's not just centered on Cochise and Geronimo, but the entire process um, from the you know pre-settlement all the way through to you know the ultimate bad deal that that happened. But it's it's really good. I'll check that out because I read um, one by Hampton Sides called Blood and Thunder about the Navajos, yep. and yep. I could that's one of the best books I've ever read ever, and. Um, it got me interested. I just, I wish I had more time. <laughs> right. Um, well, come, come on up. I got a great library here. I'll take you up on that. I really will. Um, are yeah, there any... Really uh, quickly, let me yeah. let me just tell you, this very carpenter, his ranch uh, is now owned by the Nature Conservancy in Hayden, Colorado. Okay. That library is the best Western library I've ever seen. And if you go up there, Jeff Blakely runs the ranch. 
and he'll let you go in there and and look around. And I will tell you, it is amazing. Is it really it's amazing? Yeah. I didn't even know that that was uh, that that was up there. I'll. That gives me an excuse to to make a trip up that way. Um, do you have any documentaries or films that you that you like? Or it's, I don't know how you you might not have time to with everything else you're doing to watch movies, but any that stand out? Well, you know the uh, again the the movie that uh, Robert Duvall and all you know on, on Lonesome Dove. Mm-hmm. I've watched that thing so many times. You talk to ranchers and they watch that thing over and over because it just <laughs> is, rings true. It does. You know, and and uh, you know, obviously we. We do get to watch TV here, you know, in the evenings, especially in the winter. And there's just so much good wildlife stuff anymore, you know. And people, you know, the thing that is troubling is, is you know, the Walt Disney effect of, you know, trying to understand nature through, you know, a non-realistic um, storytelling yep. versus, you know, just how it works. And and uh, you know, there's a a, a quote by Tennyson, I think it's called nature red and tooth and claw, mm-hmm. which is the reality, you know, and we live in a world, you know, that, you know, a mile from here, virtually every day, some mountain lion is killing some deer mm-hmm. or some coyotes killing a lamb or some raven is eating sage grouse eggs. And, and I think the thing that people, you know, as we get more sophisticated or hope we do is, is understanding how nature really works um, not sort of these rumors of how it works. Yeah, I agree. P- people don't, uh, th- I don't think people have a real appreciation for <laughs> how violent, for lack of a better word, it is. But that's, it's nature. I mean, that's nature. That's what it is. And uh, I think once you can, can kind of get past some of that initially, it's uh, it makes it even more magical, I think. Um, is there, this should be funny, is there some other activity that you enjoy that would be surprising to people who are listening to this. Hmm, I don't know, but surprising. I, you know, doing a little bit more, too much uh, traveling, uh, doing political stuff. Uh, that's taken a lot of time, and I enjoy it to some extent. But it, the traveling is getting to be getting to be old. And, yeah, it'll wear you out. Uh, and the other thing is the disconnect of DC anymore. You know, I uh, I was in the legislature in Wyoming with the Wyoming delegation. I've served with all the senators and congresswomen, and and over the years, you know, I've seen things work. But right now, it's so dysfunctional; it's really sad. You know, I don't know how we're going to get past that, but that you know, that's another reality we need to understand. And and actually, it's interesting in Colorado. Uh, you know, the two senators are both the kind that you can work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I heard Bennett last night talking about a bipartisan bill he's doing. Um, you know, and I, I, you just got to hope that somehow the message gets out that we're not going to ever solve anything by either litigation or, or this divisiveness. Yeah. I'm hoping that we're, we're just at a, a wrinkle in history similar to like 1968 or something where everybody just goes nuts for a little while and then it, it calms down. But it's either that or, you know, who knows, really. Um, uh, here's here's a good question. What's the craziest thing that's ever happened to you in the outdoors? You've spent so much time outdoors. What's, if, if you had to pick one experience that was just crazy, it could be scary, it could be uh, funny. Yeah, I had a, a four-wheeler flip over me a few years ago and uh, had to crawl quite a long way to find somebody to I'd kind of broken a bunch of bones in my pelvis and stuff. And that was probably it. That, <laughs> yeah, that's life. how far did you have to crawl? Well, we have, it was up on this big hillside. And, and what was the scary part is that we raised these rams for our sheep. Yeah. That weigh 300 pounds. And we had a bear killing them. And it was in that pasture. And, and I just thought to myself, I do not want this bear to eat me tonight. <laughs> so that was. I found out I could be very highly motivated. <laughs> yeah, that'll that'll get you going. Holy cow! Um, yeah, we finally, eventually, the trapper got him, and he weighed five hundred and seventeen pounds, which is a pretty darn big bear for this this country. Yeah, that's really big. Holy cow! Um, I think I know the answer to this, but if you had to pick one place that's your favorite location in the West or in the world, where would it be? 
Well, there's a place here where the Battle Creek that runs through the middle of this ranch goes in the Little Snake, which is our main river. Pretty magical place. That's, you know, kind of where I like to go and see things play themselves out. You know, I could go there right now and there'd be three bald eagles flying around and and fish jumping. and It's uh, just a beautiful spot. It's actually the spot where 175 years ago there was a the largest battle between trappers and Indians was there in 1841. Really? Yeah. Have you ever found any, any artifacts or anything in that area? Yeah, not only have we not, but we've had, you know, the pretty much top archaeological technology trying to find it. But it's right at the confluence, and I'm guessing it all washed away, you know, a long time ago. Sure. We really never found anything except there's a lot of documentation of where it was. Who won the battle? Well, it was a draw. Um, you know, there was 45 trappers and and uh, Shoshone Indians fighting Arapaho, Sioux, and and uh, oh, what was the other one? Uh, three tribes? And it was over kind of a combination of stealing horses and beaver hunting, and and the implication on this valley, as we understand it, was never any single tribe mm-hmm. and uh, it was uh, a lot of different uh the hunting was so good fremont came through here um and said this was the greatest hunting that he saw anywhere or the greatest wildlife in in the west wow and it still is great and so it was sort of cumulative you know uh, everybody came here but there were lots of battles over it but this was one you know in that uh Battle Mountain, which is behind us, and Battle Creek that runs through us are named after that battle. Oh, and okay. They they finally uh, ran out of uh, powder at the same time the Indians quit charging, and and they the Indians took their horses and they walked from here to to Fort Bridger, which is you know I'm on the state line and that's up at I-80 almost to Utah. Um, so that was that was a long walk. Yeah, whenever I hear any of these stories about that or even just your wife's family coming out here in the in 1881, it just makes me feel like such a wimp. <laughs> Those guys <laughs> well, are so tough. tough. <laughs> yeah, they were tough. Um, okay, so the next to last question, if you could make a request of the people listening to this podcast, what would it be? And like I said, it's it's generally just people who have an interest in the American West, and it could be from a recreational standpoint or an artistic standpoint or ranching. Um, is there is there some request you would have of them? Well, you know, when I tell people when I came out here, um, Ed, I not only did I not know anything about ranching, all my preconceived notions were wrong. Um, and I think, you know, this is a good time for people to take a breath and think, you know, what is the future going to be? You know, we have a a lot of documentation of the past, and we have a lot of experience with conflict. Let's let's uh, try to see how the how the future could be better. And there's so much um, good stuff happening right now all over the place. It's not everywhere, but it it's a there's a lot of models to say, hey, you know, there's a lot more in common than there is, you know, in conflict. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a great a great way to end it. And um, like I said, it's, it's, I'm always happy to hear that at any time. But but given where we are in, in the election cycle, I, I love hearing that. Um, how can people connect with you and learn more about the ranch? I know you've got a, a website and any any other online stuff people could look up to learn more about the well, ranch. The, yeah, ladderranch.com. Okay. And my, my wife does a blog not every day, but most days, um, you know, you go to ranch news and, and there's lots of pictures of grandkids, but lots of pictures of great, uh, landscapes and, and that, you know, that connects you, you know, for example, our daughter puts together our recreation stuff and that's a good way to contact her. Okay. Um, also. And I'll have links to all that on the webpage. So, um, well, this has been great. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're extremely busy, but, but thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, and look forward to having you come up, Ed. I will take you up. Your family up. You can put me to work, too. (laughs) We can do that. (laughs) Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. 
either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.